This episode is sponsored by our friends over at H&E Publishing. They're a reformed, evangelical, and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. To see their full list of titles, check out their website at hesedandemmet.com. That's H-E-S-E-D and E-M-E-T dot com. On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with our friend and London Lyceum fellow, Dr. Michael Haken, about the life and thought of John Gill. So we cover a lot of topics just like who is John Gill, what is it, what is he thinking, who are his doctrinal opponents, and a lot of that kind of cool stuff. I think it's a fascinating episode. You're really going to enjoy it. And as always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up on all the normal venues, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those things. Or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. You can contact us there. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today, we are lucky to be able to welcome back a previous guest, Dr. Michael Haken, uh, we're really looking forward to talking to him today on this particular episode about John Gill. Uh, I think one of the most eminent Baptist names that is out there. Uh, I'm really intrigued to ask him several questions on, on Gill. Um, before we jump into the topic, though, Dr. Haken, for those who may not know you, uh, I know we have a lot of listeners who do are familiar with your work, but there are several listeners who may not know who you are. If you could give us just a brief bio and background uh, before we get into talking about John Gill. Yeah, it's great to be with you again. Um, I grew up in England. I was born uh, there in the Midlands, uh, Birmingham, and then grew up in Coventry. Uh, my father was, uh, uh, is still uh, Kurdish, and uh, he had come to England after the first, Second World War to study at Birmingham. <clears throat> Met my mother there, who is Irish Catholic. So my father... I, I didn't know this until uh, I was well into my 20s that my father was born and raised Muslim. Um, so it was quite an interesting uh, uh, match. Uh, my grandfather was resistant uh, to my father getting married, but eventually agreed if my father became Catholic. So I grew up, uh, I was raised Irish Catholic. Uh, my father really kind of embraced uh, Irish culture, Western culture. We moved to Canada in the uh, 60s. And I went through a long uh, phase of radical politics. I was a Marxist, uh, committed to that sort of ideology in the late 60s, early 70s, um, and um, began to become very disgruntled with that, particularly in face of the whole question of life after death, of which obviously Marxism as a materialistic ideology has no, has no, uh, no answer. And in searching, God led me, uh, now I, you know, I look back and see it as providential, to, uh, I was working at a uh, uh, pizza parlor, and there was a young lady there who I was interested in, and found out that she went to church, and I thought, hey, I'd go to church with her. And I kind of cleaned up some of my act, thinking probably as a Catholic, and uh, it was an evangelical Baptist uh, congregation, and I was converted there in the spring of 74, since to call to vocational ministry. Um, I had been wanting to uh, do uh, PhD work in philosophy, uh, so I had that inclination towards academics. And um, in 
God's leading, uh, went on, got a PhD in church history at the University of Toronto there, and began teaching um, at a Baptist seminary. Um, and in 2002, uh, became adjunct at Southern, 2006, full-time at Southern at, in Louisville, Kentucky, where I've been since as a full-time professor uh, down till the present day. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that uh, <clears throat> that introduction. There was a lot of things there that I actually didn't know. I didn't realize yeah. that about your uh, father being raised a Muslim. That's really interesting. Um, so as Jordan said earlier, you know, we want to talk to you about uh, John Gill. So maybe you can just start with just basic facts about, you know, who John Gill is. I, a lot of our listeners are probably going to know, but, you know, we're definitely going to have some who have no idea who John Gill is. So who who is John Gill, the man, and maybe some important facts about his life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, John Gill is the most important Baptist theologian in the transatlantic kind of Baptist world of the 18th century up until, up until obviously his death in 1771. And he he continued to be a a major dominant figure. Um, And I'll mention reasons why in a a second. Uh, Born in 1697, he would die in 1771. Uh, From a very early age, uh, he was born in uh, not far from where I grew up, actually born in the Midlands. uh, and uh, grew up in a place called Kettering, which interestingly enough will be associated with a man who will be uh, critical of some of Gill's theology, namely Andrew Fuller. But um, as a young boy, he showed real promise at a school that he went to, and uh, the uh, headmaster of the school uh, uh, offered the possibility of Gill going to one of the universities in England at the time, there were only two, Oxford or Cambridge. But to go to university, you had to be an Anglican. You had to belong to the state church. And he, he told uh, Gill's parents that if, um, if they would um, uh, switch from being Baptist, they were Baptist, to joining the state church, uh, he would fund all of uh, Gill's education. Um, his parents, uh, even though they, it was a very tempting offer, because it would open up enormous opportunities for their son, uh, refused. And so Gill's formal education stopped at the age of 12. By that point, he had learned Latin. Um, during his teen years, he went on to add Greek, Hebrew, Syriac, and then uh, later languages, uh, French, German, Italian, uh, and maybe others. But those are the ones that we definitely know that he was able to be conversant in. Um, he's then an autodidact, is what we call him. He's, he's, he's self-taught, um, converted uh, in uh, his teens, baptized, um, senses a call to pastoral ministry, uh, is called to a church in London in 1719. And uh, that church will eventually become the Metropolitan Tabernacle, where C.H. Spurgeon will be, where present-day Peter Masters is, and it's still jammed in terms of numbers. And uh, Gill will go there in 1719 to London, and he'll be there till his death in 1771. Um, He is a prolific author. Um, His earliest major work is in the the 1720s is a commentary in the Song of Songs. Um, He takes the standard kind of Christological approach that the Song of Songs is about Christ and his church. Um, It's an influential commentary. Gill becomes known in his lifetime for uh, probably uh, three things. One is uh, his uh, commitment to this kind of approach to the Song of Songs. 
Uh, second would be his eschatology. He has a somewhat odd kind of premillennial eschatology. And not that premillennialism is odd per se, but his version of it is. And then also his, 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 his enormous critical commentary on the Bible. Um, during the 1730s, he gets involved in a number of theological debates, particularly with Arminianism. Um, Arminianism has become the kind of theological uh, default position of the state church, and uh, Gill finds himself debating uh, Arminians. Produces his Cause of God and Truth, which is a, a massive five-volume, uh, really kind of catena uh, or collection of uh, quotations for each of the five points of Calvinism from the Church Fathers. And there's about 70 to 80 uh, quotes for each. When I first came across that book, I thought, yeah, most of these are probably taken out of context. But uh, about three, four years ago, I had the opportunity, I was asked to do a, um, um, a study of particular redemption in the early church. And I thought, you know, where will I, where will I go to kind of even begin this? And I thought, well, why don't I go to Gill, take a look at what the quotes he's got, and then go back to those set texts. Uh, first thing I discovered is that Gill had translated all those quotes himself. Mm. Uh, he'd gone back to the Greek and Latin, translated them himself. And secondly, two-thirds of them were just absolutely solid. I mean, there were a few taken out of context, but I, I, was just, I just became deeply impressed by his ability as a patristic scholar. By the 1740s, he's publishing uh, sections of what will become his critical commentary on the Old and New Testaments. Eventually, he writes a complete commentary on the Old and New Testament. It's a, it's a critical commentary. It's not like the devotional commentary like Matthew Henry. He has devotional parts, but he's dealing with textual issues. He's dealing with Syriac, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, um, etc. It really is a very, very learned work. Um, his big work is his, is his final magnum opus, which comes out in the 1760s, is his uh, Body of Divinity, which is a systematic theology. And um, what's unusual about that book is that nobody in the 18th century is writing systematic theologies. Systematic theology was a kind of a 17th century thing. It was a Puritan thing. And uh, Gill, is, Gill, in some ways, is a, is a century out of date. Um, he is probably the, in the English speaking language, he's probably the last representative of a high reformed uh, scholasticism. Uh, people like John Owen, Thomas Goodwin, he would have fit very well with these men. And uh, he's really a bit out of date in that sense. Um, he has uh, enormous influence in Britain. Your, your standard Baptist pastor in his library probably had 35, 40, 50 books. I'm serious. And um, he'd always have Gill, his nine-volume commentary on the old, New and Old Testaments. He'd have his body divinity. And so <clears throat> 10, to, 10 to 11 of his books are Gill. So a third oh, of his library is Gill. So Gill is enormously influential. Not everybody follows Gill in the Baptist denomination, but he is widely, widely respected. And uh, a classic, I think a very good example of this, is one of the great Calvinistic Methodists, uh, William Williams Patty Kellen, who wrote Guide Me, O Thy Great Jehovah, and a central figure in the revivals in Wales, just a major, major figure, as big as Howell Harris or Daniel Rowland. Uh, when he was dying, um, on his uh, side table, he had four or five volumes of Puritan works. Among them was Gill. 
Mm-hmm. And he recommended these works to uh, those around his deathbed as the, solid, the, the most important works that they needed to build a solid theology. So Gill will be accused of hyper-Calvinism, and he has leanings that way, I think. But he was widely respected in his day and enormously influential. And here in the United States, um, that influence continued well into the 19th century. So you have people known as Gillites, uh, really, uh, who followed uh, Gill's uh, theology. So him being accused of hyper-Calvinism, and you think he has some leanings. So is that charge of him being a hyper-Calvinist fair? Would he actually, I guess, if you asked him, you know, this is what hyper-Calvinist believes, do you believe this? Would he affirm that, or does he just have those tendencies at times that kind of lean that way? Because uh, I, I was taught um, Baptist history from Dr. Nettles, and he very much said, Gill is not a hyper-Calvinist. Um, but it seems like a lot of others will say, yeah, he is a hyper-Calvinist. Yes. Well, first of all, this is a, a debated question from a historiographical point of view. And so Dr. Nettles has uh, probably what I would think is probably the minority view, hmm. which is that Gill is not a hyper-Calvinist. Now, a lot obviously depends on how you define hyper-Calvinism. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dr. Nettles believes that uh, uh, Gill did offer the gospel uh, to the non-elect, um, and uh, that he may not have liked the term offer, which Gill actually says he doesn't. He doesn't think you can actually offer Jesus. Um, hmm. So Gill may not have offered Jesus that way, but nonetheless, if you read, and Dr. Nettles uh, cites and compares some of the uh, sermons of Gill and compares them to some of the sermons of George Whitfield, particularly the endings, where you're kind of making practical application of the doctrine that you've taught, and he'll show, look, you know, here's Whitfield, here's Gill, can you tell the difference? But... Um, Hyper-Calvinism is more than simply the uh, free offer of the gospel. And uh, Dr. Nettles obviously knows this. He and I have a friendly disagreement when it comes to Gill. Um, Hyper-Calvinism involves also the commitment to eternal justification normally, not always, but normally. In other words, the, the, the a person uh, is not only uh, elected from eternity past, but they are justified from eternity past. And Gill clearly teaches eternal justification. Mm. And you can have eternal justification with the free offer of the gospel. Uh, Thomas Goodwin at times, I think, might have affirmed eternal justification. John Bunyan definitely did for a brief period of time, the idea that we are justified from eternity past. But what that means is that when God looks at a sinner before his actual conversion in time, he, that person already is, in some sense, justified. So here is a person living in sin and rebellion against the living God, and in some sense, that person is already right with God. And what happens then in time is that they realize that they are elect and justified mm-hmm. and adopted and loved, because if you've got eternal justification, then you must have eternal adoption. And Gill definitely affirms eternal justification. And it's not surprising that this sets yourself up for what we call antinomianism. Because if you've got a person who is living in sin and rebellion, and they are, there is a sense in which they're already justified, after their actual conversion, if they commit sin, well, it's really no big deal. Because before their conversion, they were living in sin, completely dominated by mm-hmm. sin, and yet they were still justified. 
So it, it really sets you up for uh, a doctoral and even maybe practical antinomianism. And um, Gill is an ardent foe of any form of antinomianism. He makes that very, very clear uh, and is devoted to the, the, the emphasis that those who are in Christ will produce good works. But I do think Gill, uh, Gill definitely um, has tendencies um, in the direction of hyper-Calvinism. Uh, if we define hyper-Calvinism as characterized by eternal justification, which leads to uh, a rejection of the free offer of the gospel. Um, Gill, despite the fact that William Williams Panty Kellen, who was in the revivals of the 18th century, uh, admired Gill enormously, uh, and man, a man like Augustus Montague, top lady, uh, who also was a very important figure in, in certain sectors of the revivals. Um, Gill was opposed to the evangelical awakening. Hmm. And he was critical for, of George Whitfield from the pulpit. And so there are tendencies in Gill which are problematic. And I, I, here I take, I take my cue as well from people like Andrew Fuller, uh, John Rowland Jr., uh, John Fawcett, Baptist leaders in the late 18th century who were critical of Gill because of these tendencies. So maybe, <clears throat> well, not maybe, definitely, you know, we, we don't want to um, glean the, the hyper-Calvinist tendencies from Gill, but what about, what are some of the things that looking back, we would consider maybe his chief theological contributions, things we do need to go back and retrieve from Gill. I know on Twitter um, recently, uh, Matthew Barrett was, was saying that, we would do well to go back and, and read John Gill specifically on the Trinity and the doctrine of God, that there's just so much there to be gleaned. I'm interested in your thoughts on that specifically, but also just any other contributions that would be of, of value to us today. Well, I think uh, just as a model of uh, care in treating the scriptures, Gill, uh, Gill's commentary um, is uh, exemplary. We, we may not follow Gill, but so for example, you know, if I'm, and I don't do a lot of preaching, but if I were preaching on a text and I had the time, I nearly always consult uh, Calvin and Gill. Um, I, I look at modern commentators as well. I don't, you know, I, don't, I, I think the argument that, you know, the older commentators are the only ones who get things right. I mean, that's just very wrong. But on the other hand, I'm very, very upset by a lot of uh, New and Old Testament scholarship that basically if it, if, if it well, didn't appear before 1900, it's not worth considering. Uh, Gill, Gill is always worth considering. Um, you may not agree with him, but he, he's wrestled with a lot of the questions that are still uh, questions that uh, scholars, uh, New and Old Testament scholars, wrestle with. In his body divinity, um, Dr. Barrett is, is right on. I mean, his Gill, Gill, one of Gill's importance, uh, one of the, the important elements of Gill's ministry is that during the 18th century, there is a massive uh, reaction against um, the doctrine of the Trinity within the larger intellectual elite of, of Britain. Uh, it's the age of reason. And uh, the central theological debate of the 18th century in many ways is uh, along two lines. One is, uh, which doesn't concern us here, is the issue of freedom, the, uh, which means freedom of the human will, uh, as well as political freedom. Uh, the other one, though, is the, 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 the doctrine of the Trinity beginning in the 1690s, running through all the way to the 1790s easily. Uh, the Trinity is a major focal point of debate and attack by Socinianism, which is Unitarianism, Deism, 
which rejects the scriptures, uh, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, for example, uh, the Jefferson Bible, in which Thomas Jefferson scored out every reference to the deity of Christ, everything that even uh, looked like a reference to the Trinity, uh, is uh, just a kind of, kind of a classic example of the sort of attack on the Trinity. And here, Gill is absolutely vital. Um, two major denominations, well, one major denomination and one lesser denomination in Britain, but completely, completely succumb to Unitarianism. Uh, the English Presbyterians, who probably comprise 80 to, 80, 80 to 85% of the children of the Puritans, disappears within three generations in Britain because their ministers do not require subscription to the Westminster Confession. And uh, basically, it's, uh, it's over the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the General Baptists go the same way. And the reason why the particular Baptist, that is Cal Gill's denomination, or sometimes Calvinistic Baptist is the term that is used, is because of Gill. Gill holds the line on the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, his, doctrine, his, his enunciation of that doctrine the clarity and the care and his tying together uh, the, the kind of grammar that develops in the fourth century with scripture um, is very, very, very significant. Um, I think Gill's, uh, I mentioned it earlier, Gill's commentary on the Song of Songs. Um, I, I, we've had a whole century of rejection of the Song of Songs as anything more than simply uh, a, a love song of the relationship between a man and a woman. And um, the kind of low point being Mark Driscoll um, claiming to find it, you know, as a, a sex manual. And uh, I mean, the, to be honest, this is a, from appalling from the point of view of, of a tradition that begins with men like Hippolytus of Rome and Origen and goes all the way through to Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And uh, that's the dominant tradition that sees it as a, a statement of Christology. And I, I think obviously there is a level in which the, 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 uh, the horizontal has to be, the horizontal plane has to be recognized. But surely the book has more significance than simply a love song. Um, especially when you find that the dominant image of the relationship between God and Israel and then Christ and the church is marriage. Mm -hmm. And so I think Gil, and I wouldn't follow Gil. I mean, if you read his commentary, you know, he's ev ev everything is allegorized. Um, you know, it's got a second uh, figurative meaning. And I obviously wouldn't follow Gil here completely, but I think Gil points us in, a, in an interesting direction. Um, and so in those, those areas, there are others, uh, eschatology, um, uh, he, he was known in his day as an expert in ex eschatology. Um, that might, I haven't read his work on Revelation, so I'm not really familiar with its mm. value. But I, I do value Gil. Mm. So I'm curious. I, I've seen some people, when they're talking about Gil, that he seems to be somewhat skeptical of confessions and confessionalism. Um, so could you talk to me about how he views the relationship of creeds and confessions to the Bible? Yeah. Um, my suspicion that that probably arises from his, his um, unhappiness with the 1689 confession. So the, uh, by the uh, turn of the 18th century, 1700, uh, the Baptists in England had basically uh, created the 
the doctrinal standard of the 16, what we called, what is called popularly the 1689, uh, initially drafted 1677, published a second time in 1688, affirmed in 1689. It's not published in 1689, it's affirmed in 1689. And Gill, Gill didn't think it was tight enough on things like eternal justification. Hmm. And so um, in the late 1720s, 1729 to be exact, 10 years after coming to uh, the church um, in, it, it was called Horsley Down uh, Baptist Church uh, in, um, in London, uh, Gill, Gill drafts his uh, new confession. And so if Gill was not into confessions, it would be odd for him to draft a confession. Mm. Uh, that becomes then the, the the standard by which you must enter the church. Um, you have to be able to agree to that, obviously undergo believers' baptism, be able to speak of conversion, etc. So Gill is very committed to confessions. In fact, uh, I think he actually writes a small little piece on the importance of confessions, mm-hmm. and that I could be wrong on that. I might be thinking of somebody else. Uh, there, there is nobody. I, I can't think of any particular Baptist in the 18th century in Britain, uh, except for maybe Robert Robinson, who's got his own deep, deeper theological problems, who is antithetical to confessions. Uh, that's a 19th century thing. It emerges in the wake, really, it, in America, in the wake of Jacksonian democracy, and the idea that if um, Andy Jackson could become the president of the United States, uh, I mean, anybody could, and so everybody uh, why do we have to listen to a, one man, uh, you know, as an expert? And so it's a reaction against a learned ministry, a uh, reaction against Calvinism, a reaction against confessions. That's all part of a larger picture. And that's really 19th century. And Gill, Gill is definitely part of that large stream of Baptist life that goes back into the 17th century where confessions are useful. They cannot, they cannot take the place of... of um, of uh, the scriptures, uh, but they're very useful and important in their own right. And so, for instance, the big the big debate at the beginning of the 18th century about confessions takes place at a place called Salter's Hall, the Salter's Hall Synod in 1719. And about 100 representatives of Baptists, particular Baptists, general Baptists, congregationalists, and uh, Presbyterians debated the question. And the, they were split down the middle. Do you need to require a minister, when you're appointing a minister of your congregation, to affirm his allegiance to a confession of faith? Uh, the, the Presbyterians to a man and the General Baptist to a man said no. Hmm. The Congregationalists, m- nearly all of them said yes, and the particular Baptist. Gill was not there, obviously. He had just arrived in London. But um, one of the men who wasn't there, but who later, later wrote on the issue, uh, namely Isaac Watts, and this will, I think, tell you where Gill is. Isaac Watts indicated that he didn't think it was an appropriate question, and he probably would have subsided with the non-subscribers. And Gill has a letter, which I've seen. It's actually in a minute book in a Baptist church in Pennsylvania. This church in the 1740s wrote to Gill asking his opinion about Watts. And he is very critical of Watts's refusal to commit himself to, subs- uh, to a subscriptionist view and the way it affects his doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, so Gill, yeah, Gill, I, I'm not sure where that sort of information would have come from, but that is just not Gill. Now, 
you just mentioned he wrote <clears throat> about Isaac Watts and that he um, was critical of George Whitfield from the pulpit. Are there any other – did he correspond directly with any names we may know of from that period, you know, either a written debate or letters or anything? Um, probably not a major figures that we would know people i mean he's he's involved in a debate with a man named daniel whitby who is a leading arminian figure um it is interesting to me that he never mentions jonathan edwards wow so gill lives to 1771 by that point edwards has written his freedom of the will it's been published original sin uh nature of true virtue obviously his works on revival uh, Gill, as far as I know, never once alludes or even mentions he's read Edwards. Edwards mentions Gill. Um, Edwards had in his library a number of, uh, I think, one or two of Gill's volumes. And uh, I think there's a place where he mentions Gill on, on the Song of Songs. Um, that is a really interesting uh, relationship that uh, that they never mention each other. Um, Gill, the, the big name that Gill battled with was John Wesley. Okay. on predestination and gill writes against wesley wesley responds gill writes back wesley responds um although there it there is this fascinating reference i've found in the seven early 1750s uh, a woman named selena hastings who was a very well-known um aristocrat who uh financially supported the revival uh, to the point of she she supported probably upwards of somewhere between 50 to 60 uh, evangelical ministers in the state, in the Anglican Church, financially uh, helping them, uh, building chapels for them, and so on. Uh, she held a, a breakfast, and it's recorded in the 19th century uh, biography of her by a man named Seymour. And at the breakfast, she invited uh, George Whitfield, John Wesley, and then a variety of men, John Senek, who was a revival figure, uh, William Romain, who was the first evangelical Anglican parish minister in London. Uh, and among the three or four other guests was John Gill. And uh, by that point, Gill has t- tackled Wesley in print. <laughs> it must have been a fascinating breakfast. <laughs> so Gill, uh, Gill, um, Gill did tackle with Wesley and... Um, uh, I think Gill dealt fairly with Wesley. Uh, Wesley Wesley theologically is just confusing. Um, he's he's not a he, he hasn't thought out his theology. It's kind of theology on the go. Um, but that's probably the biggest name uh, that he tackles with. Uh, very few of Gill's letters are surviving. Um, I think I probably only know of about a dozen in mm. various libraries. Uh, there might be who knows? There might be a cache out there somewhere. Uh, I was told about two years ago um, of a major collection of Gill's sermons in manuscript. Um, somebody during the 1760s, when Gill was preaching on a portion of the Old Testament, copied uh, about 30 of Gill's sermons into, uh, took notes and copied them out in longhand later. And nobody has ever consulted those. They're in a, they're in a library archive here in America. Really? Oh. And nobody, nobody knows about these. <laughs> Wow. So there may there, be a collection of Gill's letters somewhere and we don't know about it. That's so. fascinating. That is. Was there was there any connection between Gill and Ann Dutton at all? 
I know that there's some like, like she may have had some hyper Calvinist influence early on in her life. So I don't know if maybe there was any overlap on churches she attended and Gill's ministry or anything. Yeah, Anne Dutton goes up to London when she marries a man uh, named Thomas Cattle. And they're in London for about six years, and he, he dies very young, and she leaves London. Um, and she attended um, a church where the minister had been influenced by um, Joseph Hussey, um, who really, in some ways, in my opinion, is the father of hyper-Calvinism. He's a Presbyterian from Cambridge. Hussey was influential in Gill's life as well. Um, Gill, again, never mentions Anne Dutton. Uh, Dutton uh, is very aware of Gill. So Dutton writes about 50 books. And in one of them, I remember working through her book on, she has a tract on a passage from the Song of Songs. Uh, My beloved is white and ruddy. And she talks about how it's Jesus is white and he's red. And uh, she's, uh, she obviously has read Gill because she's, she doesn't buy Gill's little comment on it in his commentary. So, uh, I, again, it's interesting to me that Gill doesn't mention Ann Dutton. Now, the first, probably the initial response would be, well, you know, she's a woman writing theology. He would disapprove of that. I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason probably is twofold. One um, is she's not living in London. So her books are being published in London, but I think they're being published in very small print editions. I think you're running probably... I mean, most of her books today, there is one copy left. Mm. And normally, if you've got a print run of three to 5,000, you'd expect more than that. It's only, it's only 250 years ago. So probably her print runs were very small, small, you know, reading circle initially for a lot of her work. Um, Anne Dutton, I don't, Anne Dutton, also, Anne Dutton was friends with Whitfield and all the major revival leaders. Mm-hmm. And she was very strongly committed to the revival, which may be another reason why Gil doesn't mention her. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm curious, how influential has Gil been on American Baptists in particular? Well, I think enormously influential. In the 19th century, uh, Gill's uh, critical commentary of the Old New Testaments is the only Baptist commentary. Hmm. Um, and in fact, um, you know, I can't think of a Baptist commentator in the 19th century uh, uh, who would have done what Gill did. And you, uh, even in the 20th century, I mean, is there is there a Baptist figure who wrote a, wrote a commentary on the entire Bible? I mean, usually it's, by the time you get to the 20th century, it's a collective uh, uh, endeavor. Um, and the first one might be the Robin Holman, um, which was so controversial because of the Genesis volume in the 1960s. Um, so Gill, Gill is very influential in the United States. Um, m- for a man like James Pettigrew Boyce, who was the systematic theology and prof and president of the early fledgling uh, Southern Baptist Seminary, I mean, he read Gill. He would have had his students read Gill. In his own systematic theology, he quotes Gill, uh, refers to Gill, doesn't always agree with him. Um, and as I said, uh, uh, there are Gillites in America. So I know in the 1820s through the 1850s, there are battles in Kentucky between ministers who are Gillites and ministers who are Fullerites. And uh, so Gill, uh, upwards of a century after his death, he is still being read uh, with uh, appreciation and admiration. 
Um, everything changes at the end of the 19th century with the um, the impact of, of higher criticism from the European continent. And a lot of ministers feeling that to have a really full-blown education, they need to go over to either to Britain or to Germany. Mm. And at that point, not only Gale, but all of the old, the old standard figures uh, get thrown under the bus, so to speak. Um, so uh, up until probably, I would say, the eight, 1880s, uh, Gill is still a, a major figure. Um, and in certain circles, although we would probably see these as backwaters, Gill continues into the 19th, 20th century. So there is a, um, a uh, publishing house in Paris, Arkansas. I don't know if they're still in existence. Um, uh, called the Baptist Standard Bearer. And they represent, you know, an ongoing inf- interest in Gill, seeing Gill as kind of a model, and they republish his body divinity, his uh, New and Old Testament. But uh, by, the, by the 1880s, that, that, would be a, that would be actually a fascinating uh, study, just to trace that. I mean, I'm, I, I can definitely affirm that Gill, up until the 1850s, through the, the, just the antebellum period, is uh, definitely a major influence. Um, after that period, he, he wanes very quickly, but everybody does, uh, as I said, because of the rise of higher criticism. Um, it would be a fascinating study to study the influence of Gill on American Baptist life. So what are some, some resources that you could recommend for the listeners uh, in relation to John Gill? Either, I know you've already mentioned a number of, of his own works, so if you want to mention highlight any of those specifically or maybe uh, i don't know if there's been a biography written of john gill or any other works that um are about john gill himself that you think would benefit the listeners Mm -hmm. um well i mean gill himself i mean where where do you begin with reading gill um uh, there are probably a number of places uh i think is body divinity his chapter uh that deals with the doctrine of god uh, god in trinity would be a great place to begin um, uh, a funeral sermon that he preached in 1738 uh, for his daughter, Elizabeth, who died at the age of 12. Um, that really, uh, it was quite a number of years ago. I read an article by Timothy George on Gill. It was in a volume called Baptist Theologians, which went through two editions. And uh, Timothy George uh, refers to that sermon. And to me, it opened up a whole, a whole different way of looking at Gill's persona. Uh, you see Gill, the, the man, uh, deeply devastated by his daughter's death. And um, his little kind of bio of her is so touching. And um, so that would be a, a nice entry point into looking at Gill, his, mm-hmm. his biography of, uh, sorry, his um, funeral sermon on, it's on First Thessalonians 4 uh, for his daughter. Um, as I said, his body divinity, I think is is a, co- a commentary in the Old New Testaments. Um, uh, generally speaking, Gill does have a system of theology, but he is too attuned to the text that sometimes he actually goes against his own theology. Andrew Fuller points this out. Uh, so he'll, he'll actually quote Gill against Gill. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think that's, that's never good. Gill, you know, that he's so committed to the text that, Despite his own theology, he'll he'll yeah. be true to the text. Um, on on Gill, secondary sources uh, by his grace and for his glory by Doctor Nettles has a large chapter on Gill. 
Um, as I said, I, I do disagree with uh, Dr. Nettles' take on Gill in some respects, but that's a fabulous uh, chapter. Um, there is a biography of Gill uh, in recent days by George Ella, and um, it's somewhat hagiographical. Um, so he's not, he's, he, there, he's not critical of Gill. Um, and he, uh, Dr. Ella has a, an axe to, to grind, which is uh, he can't stand Andrew Fuller. And so oh. Gill becomes, Gil becomes the, the model and Fuller is the, Fuller really shouldn't come into the story at all, gets, 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 gets the slam, so to speak. <laughs> um, I, I, we, we really need a, a new biography on Gill. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not happy with the Ella biography. Um, a lot of the data is, is, is fundamentally right, but the, the tendency of Dr. Ella to wander off into attacks on theological positions he doesn't agree with is not helpful. Yeah. Um, there's an older memoir of Gill that was reprinted by Sprinkle Publications um, in Virginia, um, a memoir by John Rippon. And Rippon succeeded Gill. Uh, between 1719 and 1836, the church that becomes the Metropolitan Tabernacle under Spurgeon had two ministers. They had Gill from 1719 to 1771, and then they had Ripon from 1773 to 17, 1836. And it's just a remarkable uh, period. And Gill, uh, uh, Ripon writes a little nice memoir of Gill. Uh, Ripon is, he's a free offer man. He would disagree with Gill on that. But you see, uh, I think you see uh, the lineaments of how a biography could be written by somebody who disagrees with certain areas of Gill, but nonetheless deeply appreciative of Gill's ministry, which he inherited. Um, those would probably be the initial things. There is a there is a little pamphlet by uh, not a well-known minister, a man named Graham Harrison, um, uh, published in 1971. It was part of the Westminster Conference, which Martin Lloyd-Jones founded. And Lloyd-Jones introduces the pamphlet and closes the pamphlet. And there's a quote there where, and that's a nice little pamphlet if you can find it. It's called John Gill. Um, and I, there's a subtitle as well, but Graham Harrison is the name. And you, it might be around out there. I've, I've got a copy. Um, and it really probably should be reprinted. It's a nice little overview of Gill's life. And uh, in that pamphlet, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says something along the lines that Gill is a very important figure in the 18th century and still important to us today. And Lloyd-Jones obviously would disagree with the, the free offer uh, issue with Gill. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think this has been a really helpful uh, overview on Gill. I think that he's, that's pretty fascinating, all the, I guess, back and forth that's gone on with him and others. And the fact that he didn't correspond with Edwards at all is really curious to me, uh, especially considering Edwards, I guess, quoted him and used him. Um, that's yeah, odd. it is. It is. Yeah, it is an interesting uh, uh, lack of a relationship. Um, there's no indication uh, that Gill ever read Edwards. And um, now, again, there by by well by by the late 1760s, a number of Edwards's works have been printed in England. Most of them, though, in Glasgow and in Scotland through the ministry of a man named John Erskine who was a Scottish minister who had seen revival in Cam's Lang in near Glasgow in the 1740s and became enamored of Edwards, wrote to Edwards, and so on. And so it could be the case, again, the Glasgow imprint uh, books were not reaching London. Uh, okay. I, find that, I find that difficult to believe, though. Uh, Gill was very up. He was very in tune with, 
trends in his day. So I, I it's it would be interesting to 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 try to figure out why Gill didn't why he doesn't refer to Edwards. Uh, somebody needs to compare Gill and Edwards. Yeah. Uh, there needs to be you know you you could easily have a number of areas where you could compare Gill and Edwards on Calvinism, Gill and Edwards on the five points, Gill and Edwards on Trinity, Gill and Edwards on justification. Uh, all those would make for fascinating studies. As far as I know, there has been absolutely no study that have compared, no studies that have compared Jonathan Edwards and, and John Gill. Well, it sounds like Brandon has a good PhD topic. Oh, yeah. You're thinking, <laughs> oh, I mean, if you're interested in historical theology, 18th century, I mean, that would be really fabulous. And Jordan's interested in me doing a PhD more than I am. So. <laughs> uh, you know, every time, every chance I get, I, I'll bug him about it. That's good. So, well, anyway, uh, we've had a good time talking about Gil. Um, so thanks for talking to us about him. Uh, thanks for taking the time. I know for those who want to connect with you, do you have a website or anything that they can check out or, or what's the best place for them to go to follow the work that you're publishing and, and putting out? Yeah. Um, www.andrewfullercenter, all one word, andrewfullercenter.org uh, is the website that we have. It's based on the Southern Seminary website. Um, obviously, I have a faculty page at Southern, uh, uh, email information there and so on. And I just remembered, you just started a podcast recently, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, uh, it's called Beads Podcast. It's uh, named after the uh, 8th century uh, church historian, uh, the Venerable Bede. That's great. And well, uh, we've got five or six issues uh, up there. Yeah, it's awesome. a weekly thing. Yeah. yeah, I think I listened to the first one, so I'm really looking forward to listening to the rest of them myself. Thank and you. I know for those who've been listening, you should definitely check out uh, his podcast there. I think you'd really enjoy it. Uh, and as you've been listening to this episode, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast that exists. And we thank you for tuning in. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.